0: Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's theme is about how to flip the script on stress and cultivating resilience. And I got this really great question on social media from one of my listeners. And she asked, how do I save myself from an all or nothing perspective about everything? And we're going to be talking about this theme throughout this podcast episode, because I have just the perfect guest who is going to inspire you to really change that idea of all or nothing thinking and really make stress in many ways your friend and see it as an opportunity to create a better life. I recently just read an article on ABC News that the coronavirus pandemic, because it's worn on for so long, is really testing, but at the same time, building our resilience. And the inspiration for this article came from the work of Emmy Warner. She was a developmental psychologist who found that even though children, many of these children who have had adverse experiences, that's the mean that they're doomed for a terrible life. Some of them actually learned resilience and Believe in your own ability to develop resilience because the ability to bounce back is built into us as human beings through many million of years of evolution. And although the pandemic has taken this severe toll on mental health and it's testing our capacities to cope under sustained pressure, it's also an opportunity to better understand how people can grow in even the harshest conditions and to appreciate the things in life that matter most what doesn't kill you does make you stronger and seeking out new experiences, getting help from your community and believing that you do have control over your circumstances is going to help you to become more resilient in life. If you're ready to learn about how to flip the script on stress, then let's welcome my fantastic guest for today.
1: There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford, And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're
2: joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case.
1: Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode.
0: I am so happy to welcome my phenomenal guest today, Dr. Mike Massimino, who is living an extraordinary life and encourages others to do the same. He realized his childhood dream of being an astronaut and never gave up on this dream, despite being rejected by NASA three times before becoming one of its most valuable members. After two missions to the Hubble telescope and four spacewalks to make critical repairs to the telescope, Dr. Mike is now the senior advisor for space programs at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, a professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University, a best-selling author of this wonderful book, Spaceman, which is a must read, a television host and media personality, and an in-demand speaker for audiences seeking a unique perspective on teamwork, innovation, and leadership from a down-to-earth spaceman. Dr. Mike has a bachelor's degree from Columbia University, dual master's degrees, and a PhD from MIT. He is the first person to ever tweet from space, a beloved recurring character on one of my favorite shows, The Big Bang Theory. And if you haven't seen his series of Wired videos about life as an astronaut... They are must-watches if you're ever curious about how astronauts live and work. Please welcome the funny and brilliant Dr. Mike Massimino. Yay!
2: Thank you, Dr. Judy. That was such a good introduction. I don't think I should say anything else right now. Was really <laughs> oh, my well done. God. Thank you for all of that.
0: You are so welcome. You are such an accomplished person, and you've overcome a lot of adversity to get to where you are. And everybody has that dream. I think a lot of kids will say, I dreamt of being an astronaut. But of course, almost no one gets to realize that dream for real. So can you tell me about that moment when you first connected yourself to that dream as a seven-year-old?
2: Sure. Judy, it's pretty uh, pretty easy. I think the uh, for me, it was the, the moon landing. Um, I, I don't know if it was the exact moment of when they stepped on the moon, but it, it began for me maybe a little bit before. That's one of the first memories that I can uh, that I can remember as a six year old going on seven. That those months before, I remember Apollo 10 going down close to the moon but not landing, and then the build up for Apollo 11, the launch day, and I remember the the admiration that all the the teachers. I was at a summer recreation program at school, and that some of the teachers were there, and we they rolled in the 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 television to watch the launch and then the landing of course, on July 20th of 1969. And, and I just thought that this was the most important thing happening. I remember thinking that it was the most important thing, not only happening now, but it was the most important thing that was going to happen for hundreds of years. And that's the way I felt about it as a little kid. I don't know why it hit me like that, but it did. And I still feel that way about it. So that was, that's what happened to me. I it just, it was, it was great. It, ca- it caught my heart and my soul.
0: And it's amazing that you can recall that story as if it was just yesterday. Yeah. You had yeah, those so, feelings. One of the
2: first things I really remember. I don't remember too much before then, but I certainly remember that.
0: That's so cool that it's one of your biggest memories, basically, yeah. when you think back to your life, that it was maybe one of your first important memories. And yeah. then as you were growing up, you sort of let that dream kind of go a bit to the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. But eventually you brought that dream back and this was with the encouragement of one of your coworkers. I know that you mm-hmm. talked about this in your book, which was so cool that again, these people see that potential in you. They, they, they believe yeah. in you. They want you to go live your dream. And this particular man, he was a coworker of yours, Jim McDonald. So tell me mm-hmm. how he sparked your interest again and how you then started to pursue this dream.
2: Yeah, Jim, it was. uh, And uh, Jim's still a very good friend of mine and still my mentor to this day. And that was a long time ago. I was a kid pretty much. I was uh, in college when I I first met him. Um, But uh, I think he, as you say, Judy, I think it's it's really important for us to pay attention to people who see something in us. And also for us on the other end, when we see something in someone, we need to let them know about it. Um, and I think that that's, that's really important. You know, we try to do that maybe as parents and our parents try to encourage us, but I think when it comes from someone else, when it comes from someone who we respect, maybe that we met, uh, like I did my, my friend working as a summer student, as an intern, um, that really can be even more meaningful. I think at times when a teacher or, or a mentor or someone we look up to sees something in us. So I think we can have that effect on people as well. For me, um, I was, it was my first real job sort of working before I graduated, it was after my junior year of college, I was working in a big engineering firm, at Sperry Engineering on, on Long Island. And uh, I enjoyed the job and I really enjoyed the people, but it, it, I, I kind of got the sense that that probably really wasn't gonna be my passion in life. And so I started thinking more and more about what would what really, really mattered to me. Uh, the space program was something that, I, as we said, I, I got interested in as a little kid, but I, I never thought that was possible. By the time I was like nine years old, mm-hmm. there's no way I thought that could happen. I was afraid of heights. Uh, and I still am afraid of heights, which can be a problem at times as an astronaut, but I don't even like going fast. You know, I don't like, like, (laughs) I was always always the slowest on my bike. I wasn't a thrill seeker. I, I I, you know, I didn't really see myself growing up to be an astronaut. How do you do something like that? So I just kind of forgot about it. But what that, what that experience with my friend, Jim, when he would, he would ask me questions about what I enjoyed and what I was, what I was really interested in. He should tell me, follow your bliss is what Mm. he said was important in life. And I started thinking about that. I was like, well why not it took a few years for it to sink in it was after about a year after i graduated college that i realized you know i could just dream about the space program and be interested in it or Mm -hmm. i could try to become a part of it and i felt like it was time to either do something or to shut up and i decided (laughs) i have to do something you only have one life and if it's something you're passionate about you have to give it a try and so i started taking steps that would uh, one day lead me to space
0: And I love that theme that permeates throughout your book, which is, you know, do what you can in this lifetime. Basically, it's all about doing something meaningful, doing something that's going to contribute because we all just have a short blip of time here on this earth. And I can't imagine how profound of a realization that could be, especially as an astronaut, when you get to be above the earth and really seeing just the magnificence of everything that we live in and the wonder of everyday life. And you weren't the typical astronaut candidate. I know that you kind of alluded to this already, you know, a little bit afraid of heights, uh, didn't really know how to swim, um, you know, didn't like to go fast. And you have a vision impairment. That yeah. was actually the primary reason that you got medically disqualified several times before making it. So tell me a little bit about overcoming those obstacles, because I am actually. Legally blind, I think, by definition, in terms of how nearsighted I am. Mm-hmm. So certainly this is never going to be a dream for me. But how did you overcome all of these obstacles?
2: Yeah, you know, ne- you never know, Judy. I think uh, you know, you take them one at a time, I guess, at, as they show up. And, uh, you know, for me, when I when I wanted to pursue the at least a career with NASA, I never really thought I could become an astronaut. And even after I've been one for 18 years, I look back and say, did it really happen? Like I still can't believe it actually happened. But uh, I felt like I needed more education. So I went to MIT, as you mentioned earlier in my introduction, to get more education and wanted to work in a space program to get more experience. And the first couple of times I was rejected, um, I could kind of make sense of it in my mind that the first time I was rejected, I was still in grad school. I hadn't finished. The second time I was rejected, I had finished. I was almost finished with grad school, but I really hadn't any real practical experience. And so that was the way I justified that. The third time, though, when I was interviewed and failed the eye exam, uh, I was disqualified because back then, this is different now, Judy. So they've changed these rules. So if anyone out there is listening or you want to apply, Judy, I'd encourage you, <laughs> do right. anything stands in your way, um, including some of the medical standards. Just send, let, let, let them tell you when there's a problem. But the, the standards have changed uh, and they update them every year. So some things that are disqualifying end up not being disqualified year la- years later, disqualifying years later. But back then you had to see pretty well uncorrected and I didn't see it. That well and correct. they changed all that. They'd loosened it up. But this is 20, 25 years ago. They weren't they they weren't going to change those rules anytime soon. And I failed the eye exam. I was marked disqualified. What they told me was they wouldn't even read my application any longer. So I could, mm-hmm. I could, I couldn't even really try again. And that was, I think, most disheartening. I understood that I was trying to do something that was really difficult and probably wasn't going to work out. And but I wanted at least to force them to tell me no. To be in a situation mm-hmm. where I couldn't even apply. That was really unthinkable. And uh, the only thing I could think of that I could do is try to figure out a way to see better. They did not accept LASIK back then. Again, I think Mm. some of that has changed of what they accept, but none of these procedures were accepted back then. Um, It's a different world we live in now. But the only thing I could think of was I have to figure out a way to see better. I looked into it. There was was a book, it was called Seeing Without Glasses. I found an optometrist in Houston that worked with little kids and helping them improve their vision through eye exercises. She had told me she never had worked with anyone younger than 10. And I guaranteed her I could, I could really act very immaturely if needed. And so <laughs> she, she took me on as a patient. And I was able to pick up a couple lines on the eye chart. But when you're wow. desperate and you don't have any other choice, and the idea of giving up is just unthinkable, you have to, I, had, I had to come up with something to at least try. Mm. Whether or not it was going to work out, I don't know. But I knew I needed to at least try. Uh, and, and it worked out.
0: Yeah. And you kept going from individual to individual asking for direct feedback about what can I do about this? How mm-hmm. can I improve my application and finally get in? And I think that that is such a brave thing to do. I think sometimes people are afraid of that feedback. They might be afraid of what they hear, because if it's critical, sometimes people feel like they can't handle it. But you really pushed. You said, you know what, I'm going to give this my all and, and make it happen. And then you finally did. And you got that phone call. So tell me about how yeah. you felt when you finally got that acceptance phone call to NASA.
2: Uh, well, I knew that I knew that call was coming um, the week uh, the week before uh, the, the longer version of the story here is that my friend Mark Kelly, who is running for Senate right now in Arizona, when we interviewed together together and uh, he he kind of included me in a uh, in, in kind of a uh, I guess back then, I don't know if you would call it a chat or a Facebook. We didn't have any of that back then. But it was kind of like an email list uh, of knowing what was going kind to of, people would share information who are who interviewing. and. I, there was one note that came across on a Friday afternoon. I think, it was, I think it was on April 19th, 1996, was this Friday afternoon, if we look it up. But I think that's, that was the date. Uh, not that I remember these things clearly. But, but that email came across and said that someone had called NASA, and they said that the calls were going out on that Monday, mm. good or bad. Everyone was going to find out that Monday. And so I knew that call was coming. And I remember putting my young son, my, my kids were young. My daughter was three. My son wasn't even yet one years old. But I remember putting him down in his crib the night before that Sunday night thinking, well, Daniel, tomorrow night when I put you to sleep, I'll know whether or not dad's going to be an astronaut. Wow. uh, So I knew it was coming. I decided to stay home because I didn't want to cry in the office if I got a bad phone call. (laughs) So I stayed home that morning and the phone call came. And Dave Lietzma, who was the head of flight crew operations, was on the other end. And he asked me how I was doing when I picked up the phone. And I said, I don't know, Dave. You're going to have to tell me how I'm doing. And he said, well, I think you're going to be Doing okay because we hope you're still interested in becoming an astronaut. We want to make an astronaut, and I, the only word that came out of my mouth from that from that moment on to him was yes. Yeah. And I didn't want to mix the man up. I wanted to be very clear. Yes,
0: yes, yes. Oh, so amazing! And then, of course, you did go on then to actually do your four spacewalks. And yeah. I want you to tell me a little bit about that first moment as you were approaching the launch pad. I mean, again, were there <laughs> yeah. a few minutes of terror there? I mean. Yeah. You know, like this is it. There's no turning back.
2: Yeah, it really, you know, sometimes it's better not to think about things, Judy, until you actually get there. You know, I, yeah. uh, you know, don't worry about you know, I need to worry about some things. But, uh, you know, I was just really excited about launching into space and I dreamt about it my whole life. And I got selected. That phone call came in, in, in April of 96 and we showed up for work in August of 96. And two years of training to be qualified to go to flight. Uh, in 2000, I was assigned to the flight. You know, it was a big wait. Even after it became, it was six years from the, after I was selected wow. that I was getting ready to launch into space. So I'd been waiting a while, I thought, and was really anticipating this moment. And that day comes and you get dressed in, in your space suit and you get out to the launch pad. Ours, that, that, that was an early morning. It was a night launch. We, mm-hmm. went, we launched r- right at dawn. So we got out to the launch pad about two or three in the morning. In the middle of the night is when we got out there. <laughs> And uh, I had never been around a space shuttle that was ready to launch like in a, in a couple hours. I had been around a space shuttle earlier that day, but there was no fuel in the tank at mm. that time. And a lot of people out there, a lot of activity, checking out the vehicle. And, but the reason I'd never been around a uh, spaceship that was fueled before is they don't let anybody near it. Because once they put fuel in the tank, they clear the area. Because you basically have a bomb sitting there a little wow. bit too close to Disney World. So they don't want anybody near body. They, they only do that at the last minute more or the last few hours. So when I got out there, there was no one around, really just a couple people that were going to jam us in there into the into our seats. And uh, the space shuttle, the structure around it was rolled back. So it was Mm -hmm. really bright, bright lit. And it looked beautiful, but it was a little bit intimidating because it looked like this thing was ready to go to space. (laughs) There was smoke coming off of it. It was just water vapor from the cryogenic fuel burn up. But it looked like it was smoking. And the sounds, the thing that I remember when these sounds, Judy, they were hideous. These unworldly, just like bending metal screeching. Wow, it looked looked like it was alive, it looked like a beast. (laughs) And uh, I thought to myself, after all these years of dreaming of this moment, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And I actually (laughs) looked around, you know, the guy was driving that, he got drove, we got driven out there in what's called the Astro Van. I looked, the guy was gone, he was too smart, he was out of there. So the only place to go was to, to get on board at that point. And just like a lot of things, thinking about things is a lot worse than doing them. Something you're a little nervous about or worried about. When you actually get in the moment of it, it's not that bad. Once I got inside the spaceship, I was fine. But looking at that thing uh, at night, you know, it was dark out, so I think that made it worse. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but looking at that brightly lit space shuttle um, was pretty intimidating.
0: Wow. I mean, it sounds intimidating, but like you said, so much of our fear is about anticipatory anxiety. And then once you're in the moment and you're dealing with it, you know, you've trained for it. It's happening and you just manage things from there. So tell me about what jobs you did on your two missions.
2: Uh, I, I got to do a lot of different things, but primarily my big responsibility was to be a spacewalker. Our missions were a little bit different than most other missions that uh, that the shuttle performed. Uh, it, was the, it was servicing missions, as you said, in the intro to the Hubble Space Telescope. So our job was to go up to Hubble, get close enough to it that we could grab it with the robot arm, put it in the payload bay, and then work on it uh, for mm-hmm. five consecutive days of spacewalking. And so that was our clear uh, objective. There wasn't like, any other real science experiments. There was a few little biomedical experiments we did. But that was our job and we couldn't mess it up. So we practiced the rendezvous, the grapple, and then the spacewalks. And so I was involved as a robotics operator helping Nancy Curry on my first mission, who was a primary robotics operator and the rest of our crew with the rendezvous and the grapple of the telescope. But then the big responsibility was the spacewalks, not only when you're outside, but we had two teams of, of space, four four in total. So two teams, two guys each. And so we would look after the, the other guys who were spacewalking on the days they were, they were out there and they would look after us when we were out there. And of course, you're out there performing the spacewalk. But that, that really became my world, the, the training behind it, how I could contribute to those, to those spacewalks, thinking of different ideas, making sure I knew what I was doing, knew it, making sure I knew the checklist to help the other guys when they were out there. That, was, uh, that became my world uh, for a year and a half of training and then, of course, for the flight itself.
0: Wow. So you spent all this time preparing. What was it like to finally do your first spacewalk and just being there and seeing everything around you and taking in all the sights?
2: Uh, It was uh, better than what I imagined, but I don't know if we really can imagine these things. I think the thing about spaceflight that I found, Judy, was that it was kind of beyond anything I could ever really imagine, although I dreamt about it. I'd been an astronaut for six years. I worked at the Johnson Space Center for a few years before that. So I'd been around NASA. I'd been well-trained, done a lot of simulations, watched a lot of film, talked to a lot of astronauts. I, I still don't think I was really prepared to see what I was going to see. To do my job, I was really well-prepared. I knew my spacesuit really well. I knew the procedures really well. I, I even was able to help some of the other guys because I I really studied hard and and. Took the training seriously, um, but but when it came to what I was going to see the view of our planet, I, I think that's almost it was beyond me. And when I when I had a chance, the first look, of course, out the window was spectacular after we got to orbit. But what really I thought was impressive was going out as a as a spacewalker. And our altitude at Hubble is 100 miles higher than the space station. So the, when you if you see the images from from space station. Mm. the where the space station flies 100 miles higher than that you see more detail at hubble we saw less detail of the planet but we saw the curvature of the planet so it's Mm. this gigantic globe it takes up your whole field of view but you can see the curve and there's no window to obstruct your view when you're out there for a spacewalk and it was just utterly overwhelming especially at first i could not believe the sheer beauty that was reaching my eyes it was just incredible
0: I can't even imagine what it's like to be able to see that Mm. in real life, as opposed to, of course, all the photos, all the calendars, everything that I've bought all over the years, Mm -hmm. because I'm a huge uh, fan of astronomy. It's not the same, obviously, as if you're just really in there experiencing all of its beauty in the moment. And I want to talk about how you've applied some of your learnings Mm -hmm. as an astronaut to the current stress that everybody's under. Now (laughs) everybody has been under an immense amount of stress. And I love that just a few months um, ago, you did this wired video about how do you apply (laughs) astronaut learnings to, you know, managing stress in the pandemic. And I loved it because One of the things that I love so much about you, Mike, is that you give credit to the team. You know, you've done amazing things individually, but you always say, if it wasn't for the team, I wouldn't accomplish everything that I have. And you mentioned this concept of, Mission control, like being someone's yeah. mission control and tapping in with your mission control. So, can you talk about that and how people can use that to manage stress?
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that um, the uh, when we're in, we're in space, we don't we don't go there alone. We're with our other crewmates, and we think we're in our own little a sp- spaceship. Or in, when you're out spacewalking, your own little spacesuit. So you do have this sense of loneliness, like mm. especially when you're out there in your spacesuit because you're out there in the middle of the universe, really looking around like wow look at this neighborhood I'm in. It's really yeah. it's really impressive. And you're in your own little spacesuit. And when uh, particularly during the spacewalks is when I kind of felt the the independence from everybody else, which was kind of cool, but not really that great when you made it when I made a critical error on my last spacewalk and my fourth spacewalk, I stripped the bolt on the telescope preventing me from a repair. I was trying we did not have a backup for this. And it was such a simple task. That everyone, including me, thought even I couldn't mess it up, but I did, and I just felt terrible. And like, oh, I remember looking at the planet and thinking, the nearest hardware store is a long way away. <laughs> oh you know, no. that's what I thought. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do now? Uh, where everyone that could help me is down there. There are billions of people down there, and no going can help me. I'm, but what happened was, is uh, that the the ground came into play, where the control center uh, sprang into action, and and they they were located. The control center, of course, is in Houston, but our team was located in other places around the country, including the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, and someone had an idea of how we could fix this problem, called up to the Goddard Space Flight Center so they could try it out on an instrument that was in a clean room in one of our facilities up at NASA Goddard uh, in Maryland. They did that test. They had not have that much time to figure this out. I'm out there spacewalking. You're going to run out of life support eventually <laughs> rather quickly, really, so uh, we can't stay out there indefinitely. So they, uh, they radioed that plan back to the control center and, and then we, we tried it and it worked. But that time in between, um, what I think is applicable to now is that when you're feeling that loneliness mm. and you feel like, oh man, you know, this, what did I do? I messed this up. What am I going to do now? And things just really stink. Remember, there is a place you can go, whether that's your family, your friends, your teammates, and reach out to them. And re- I fessed up what happened, of course. Uh, that was part of my job, but also the communication between them. They they helped me along. And my friend Dan Burbank was the Capcom, one of my good friends from my astronaut class. And just hearing his voice in my ear as I was living this nightmare of what I had what I, what I had done to the telescope. My God, what I, you know this is a horrible thing I had done. How could I have done this? Just hearing my buddy's voice and realizing that you know my friends were still there to help me. My friends in the cabin, my friend Drew Foistel was an astronaut inside the cabin trying to help me and knowing that they were going to stick with me was really important. So I look at that as that when you need help, reach out to mission control and, and they'll be there for you. Have your own mission control that you can go to. And I think maybe even more importantly is try to be mission control for somebody else. I, I had worked that job in, in the control center as Capcom, which is kind of a shortened version of spacecraft communicator. And I'm, as that job, as an astronaut, you're the only person who is talking to the crew in space. And even though you think, well, they're astronauts, they know what they're doing, they're having a good time. Not necessarily. You know, They're trying mm-hmm. to do their job. They can't see all the people that are helping them. They, you can sometimes forget that people are there to help you, even as astronauts. And so I always felt it was important in the control center, always to remind the crew, hey, we're working on it. We haven't forgotten about you. This is where we are. And I would, I knew because that was my primary job. And I think that's important for us now, is to think about who you can be mission control for and who is your mission control. Reach out and get help when you need it and provide help when you can provide it.
0: Absolutely. Not only are you giving back when you're mission control for someone else, but it's also that feeling of connectedness. So you get something out of it by reaching out to someone too. And I think that is so important because I know so many people out of necessity have at least physically isolated because of the pandemic, but it does lead to a emotional isolation as well. And your example is so apt because when we're not doing well, like when you make a mistake, the first thing you want to do is maybe hide and isolate. (laughs) But really, that's when you should... Be brave, reach out, you know, and there's always gonna be somebody to catch you and and help you through. I also love that in that video you talked about this concept of mindfulness, just appreciating the beauty that is around you. And I know you mentioned, you know, appreciate the beauty outside your window, but I love the story about how you guys got held up in the last couple of days before coming back because of bad weather. And you just really soaked up that opportunity just to look out your window and really appreciate just the vastness of the universe and the experience that you were currently in.
2: Yeah, I, 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 the our planet. Uh, I, I you know there, we talked a little earlier. There are no words uh, early in our conversation. We mentioned the view, and there are no words that created to describe our planet's beauty. And yeah. I think that the true beauty of our planet is meant to be seen from space. And my my thoughts looking at it, it was during my first spacewalk where I formed this opinion that when I was looking at the planet, just lost myself in the view the feeling I had was, well, this must be the view from heaven. And then mm. I thought about it and I go, nah, that's not even, that's not it. There's something wrong with that, that thought. And I thought then the next thought that came into my head to replace it was this is what heaven must look like.
0: Mm. And
2: that's that's the way I got a chill just now thinking about that sight of our planet at that moment. I think we're living in an absolute paradise. And although I was able to see it from up there, we can still see it around here. <laughs> you know, we can look out our window, hopefully, or Try to enjoy the outside. I live in New York City is a beauty to the city, even the buildings and the people and sometimes even the hustle and bustle, not just the nature that's present, but just the whole, the whole planet of how we engage it and we live in it. It's and what we, what we do is, is I I think there's, there's a beauty to it that we need to appreciate. And the other thing that I realized up there is, is that going around the planet so many times, uh, was that we all share the same home no matter where we're Mm. from. We, we all have the same home. I, yeah. I right now live in New York, but I really think of myself as, as my home as being planet Earth. And it's a place that we're all, we all share and then we all are connected in that way. But just appreciating our planet, I think it's important at this time that, that we're stuck inside maybe more and we don't get a chance to do the things that we would have come accustomed to do. So I think it's important to try to get out there and, and appreciate it and enjoy it as much as we can.
0: I completely agree with that. And I really think that your entire life and journey as an astronaut has been this testament to gratitude and appreciation for what we have. And just even thinking about the way that astronauts have to live in space and work in space. I am always fascinated by this topic. And I know a lot of people are too. And I watched your Wired videos and I'm thinking, I don't think I could do that. You know, all the things that you take for granted, right? Like how you brush your teeth, how you go to the bathroom, showering. I mean, you just don't, Get to do it the same way in space. So, what was the hardest thing for you to get used to? Because there was a lot of changes you had to make.
2: Uh yeah, let me tell you something, Judy. No problem, you'd be okay. You <laughs> shouldn't let it I mean the little things like that, like going to the bathroom and eating and brushing your teeth, you can learn how to do those. There, you know, there are other things that were, were more challenging, let's say, to becoming an astronaut, but certainly don't let you should never let things. I think no matter what, they're standing in the way of something you want to do. I think you'd be a fine astronaut. So I want to worry about those. So you, they'll, they'll teach you how to do that, too. Yeah. Um, the most difficult thing, I think, you know, I, I think for me was just getting used to, um, as you said, I, I, wasn't necess- I wasn't a military person. Um, I wasn't necessarily even a thrill seeker, believe it or not. So a lot of it was getting used to doing things that I was kind of nervous about doing, <laughs> you know, and. I mm. uh, try to overcome those fears just because I wasn't used to a lot of the things that I was asked to do. I had I, had, I had, some things I had done before becoming an astronaut that I think had given me some experience and had given NASA the the confidence that I would could learn these other things. But, uh, you know, I was a, a scuba diver and I was also a private pilot and um, I liked the outdoors and so on. So, but I really wasn't, uh, you know, I'd never been in a high performance jet and I hadn't been doing these other things that some of my other classmates had done. And so for me, I think that that was kind of tough was uh, was getting used to doing things that were really out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And what I found was, is that just as we had said before, you reach out and get help. When I found things that I was uncomfortable with, and a lot of it was the more of the adventurous things that we were going to do, you know, I, I sought help and and got help to become more comfortable at those things. Uh, and, and once you get, once you get used to them, they're really not that bad. Everything we did was, was safe and we did it the right way. And we made sure no one was going to get hurt or try to make sure. But I think for me, that was it. Like some of the thrill seeking stuff that, that was involved with being an astronaut. Some of my classmates really loved it. And I was like, well, okay, if I have to, so that was, <laughs> that was maybe the, the toughest thing part of it for me.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, to your point, I think some of the things that perhaps you thought were the most difficult, um, you know, for somebody else, it could be different. Everybody's experience is, is incredibly different in terms of how they adapt to adversity and changes. And I want to talk about the psychological resilience it takes to be an astronaut. As you mentioned, things do require retooling. And you know, you don't have privacy when you're traveling in space. And Mm -hmm. even when you were talking about, you know, food, you know, you you still want it to taste good, because that's one of those things that Mm -hmm. makes you feel good and keeps you going. So, so what does it take to have the type of psychological resilience that you and your teammates had to travel in space?
2: I, I think it's, we talk a lot about teamwork, um, the importance of the mission being more important than you mm. uh, as an individual and putting that first. I, I, you know, the, the, the food and all that, that takes care of itself. The food I thought was great. I'm one of only two astronauts to <laughs> gain weight in space. <laughs> so uh, if you have a problem with the food add Tabasco, you know, that's why we have that stuff, but mm. the food I thought was great. I really enjoyed it. So, that was None of those things were, and food does provide a psychological comfort, but one of the things that was important to me that I felt maybe the best thing about being an astronaut was, was this feeling of camaraderie and mm. the feeling of purpose in what you were doing. And we talked about gratitude, feeling just feeling very fortunate and trying not mm. to ever take that for granted, yeah. that we were very fortunate to be picked to do this. Uh, on our very first day of work, I remember Bob Cabana, who now is the head of the Kennedy Space Center. He was the chief of the astronaut, a marine pilot, good friend of mine. We became good friends. He was my boss when I first was hired, and he talked to our entire class. And you know, a lot of people wanted to become astronauts that year, and we were the lucky ones selected. I remember him saying that uh, that we were they were very happy to have us, but we they wanted to make sure we appreciated the opportunity we we were given. And that there were thousands of people who would trade place with us that day. Think about that. Sometimes we think about, well, am I am, am I lucky or not? But you think about that. How many people would trade places with you? And right. and that was the truth. And he said, the only difference between you and them is that you are more fortunate than they are. And I think that that's true. A lot of times we, it's good fortune plays a role. and And that's so I always felt I wanted to keep that gratitude and never take it for granted. I think the thing that we're looking for in astronauts, the thing I thought was was the best personality trait, if you could find it in people, was that idea of being a a good teammate to the point where you could tell that person anything. Hey, Mm. man, I really messed up or I got this going on, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life, and that person is going to be there for you. They're not going to turn it against you. They're going to say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll get by, you'll get by this together. And I think that's the bond we had particularly with my crew this the second crew that I flew with we were very very close we we trained together for two and a half years we all became very good friends as a matter of that it was it was kind of this hybrid between being a family member and being being a friend and I, and it that's that's the, the those are some of the closest friends I have some of the people I've been closest to in my life or the people I I've I flew in space with and I think if we can try to get that sort of feeling with our coworkers uh um, I think that that's that's what we want as organizations if we can is that sort of that sort of closeness and so I I think those were those are the things that led that that closeness between people the importance of the mission the gratitude we had that leads toward trying to trying to make sure that you're going to be successful at what you're doing that you're going to work together and you're going to either win or fail as a team winning as a team is easy You know, you can high five each other all day after a win. But what happens when there's a loss? When I made that mistake, my friends could have threw me under the bus and no one would have blamed them, including me. It was totally my fault. But that wasn't the attitude. It was, hey, Mike made this mistake. We're going to work with him and get him through this. And we're going to get through this together. And if we don't, it's not his failure. It's our failure. And that, I, I think, was kind of the way we approached everything. And when you put the importance on that, no matter what challenge is in front of you, you figure out a way to get around it. And sometimes you get around that as a team.
0: I think that that's a great lesson for life and can be applied to anything because I think so many times we struggle alone um, and we don't tell people about our struggles. We don't realize that help is there and that that feeling of being part of something greater is really what nourishes us as human beings and nourishes our spirit. And I think right now, especially right now, in this political climate, there's so much division and so much conflict that sometimes we forget that sense of community and the universality of what it means to be human. And like you said, planet Earth is all of our homes, no matter what your political views are, no matter what your struggles are, what your successes and failures have been. And really thinking about that connection and being a good teammate, I think is such a good lesson in general for life. And Dr. Mike, you're a professor now. You're teaching the next generation, which is really cool. And I think that right now, so many people need to hear from you because they need that inspiration. They need that hope for what the next step is going to be. And I think you, being a small town kid who's been able to realize this pretty much seemingly impossible dream for yourself, I think there's just a lot that people can learn from you. So, what is your favorite thing about this part of your job, and what do you want mm-hmm. people to learn from your life story?
2: I, well, as far as my professor job goes, my teaching job, uh, my my favorite thing are the students I get to work with, uh, you know, particularly the younger ones, the, uh, the undergraduate students. The grad students are great too, but but you know, something about these younger younger uh, young people uh, that I think is just uh, they just amaze me. I think they're a much better version of my of my generation, and echoes to my own children as well. I think they're they're concerned about our planet. They're concerned about each other. They they care about people in a way that I think is really extraordinary. And um, I think education of about things and opening up your your thoughts and uh, about the way the way the world is and the way people are and freedoms they should have and so on. I think has been very helpful over the years. I think it's finally starting to sink in. And I think this newer Group of of young people that I get to interact with uh, as a professor. Um, that that's that's what I enjoy the most. I'm the advisor for the space club, and I get to teach my a couple classes, and I get to interact with a lot of high school students too. So I think it for me, that's my favorite part of the job is interacting with them. As far as messaging goes, what what I you know what I can contribute, I think um, with my experiences is just what it, what it was like to be out there in a very practical world where things had to work. From the engineering mm. perspective, uh, are the spacesuits we had weren't make believe. They were real and uh, mm. it wasn't just equations and theory. Things had to work. The rocket ship had to work in a certain way to get us to orbit. All the rendezvous orbital mechanics had to work. The life support systems had to work. So I try to show them how important it is when to, to design things and build things when that practical experience, when they, where they really need to work. But I think the thing that I really do try to to try to hammer home and some of the comments I've gotten from my students of some of the more useful things is this idea of, of not giving up on a dream and, and mm. being, being okay with, with maybe not doing as well as you'd always like all the time. Um, what, I, what I tell my students it, and what I found out in life is that successful people, whether it's, it's you, Dr. Judy, or any of your other guests that I've seen or, you know, that you've had on the show, it's just an incredible group of people. Not one of them, including you and I, are, are were, had success in our lives because we never failed. It's because mm-hmm. you never let failure stop us. That's the common thread between successful people. And it, you know, you, whether they're really good, what we would call successful people that are around some of some of your guests, but just in general, someone in life who's hopefully living a happy life, um, you know, you're going to have those setbacks, and you just can't let those those things stop you. You have to realize that this is what life is. And it's okay. And I think that's what I try to to get across to them. I think that those are very valuable lessons for young engineers who are, who are training to be engineers, but also for people who are trying to achieve extraordinary things like a, I think a lot of the young people today are trying to do.
0: I think that's such a wonderful lesson because people do fear failure. And you're not going to get to any kind of success, whether it's relationship or familial or yeah. career without having those mistakes. And I just wanted to read from this last part of your book, because I just loved these quotes so much um, to those young boys and girls, whatever their space dream is, that they'll go for it. Whatever hurdles are in their way, they'll get past them when they fall down, they'll get back up. They'll keep going and going, working harder and harder and running faster and faster until one day before they know it, they'll find themselves flying through the air. That gives me chills reading that. I, I think that's just such an important life lesson. And I just feel so fortunate and blessed to have you on my podcast today. Um, your book, Spaceman, is terrific. It's available in bookstores and, of course, on your website, mikemassamino.com. Where else can people find you in the good work that you're doing?
2: Uh, well, that's a good place. My website. Thank you for mentioning that in the book. I really appreciate that. I also have a, a young reader version of it, which I think I have a copy here. So these are for the younger kids. This came out in April. right in the middle of where we started with our pandemic. <laughs> Not much of a book tour on that one. That was a virtual book tour. Uh, but I also, you can follow me on, uh, on Instagram, uh, Ash, Astro Mike Massimino. I was the first guy to tweet from space. So uh, you can find me at uh, Astro underscore Mike. Uh, I also have Facebook, uh, Mike Massimino, uh, Mike Massimino, and I, mean, even, I started with LinkedIn, which is more of a, kind of an interesting thing. So you can find me there as well. So um, that and my website can uh, give you probably more information than, uh, than you'd ever want.
0: Well, fantastic. I learned so much from you and can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you again. Up next are my supercharged tips of the day. Don't go anywhere. Wow, you guys, I so enjoy talking to Dr. Mike. He is such a phenomenal person, accomplished so much, but is so down to earth and encouraging of everybody to follow their dreams. So let's talk about today's supercharged secret on how to flip the script on stress. Because really... This is what Astro Mike has done all his life. Whenever he came across another adversity or challenge, he would just push through it. And he has all of these wonderful tips and ideas on how to do this. And I'm going to talk about it as I talk about some of my ideas for you. My first tip is to recognize your own stress triggers. So this takes a little bit of self-examination. You're going to have to sit down and think, you know, when do I feel off Kilter, you know, what types of things happen that cause me to feel more stressed and to maybe be more reactive and to not manage my mental or physical wellness as I usually do. So, recognizing the stress triggers is absolutely the first step because you need to know what's problematic before you can think about how to problem solve it. The second tip is to reframe threats as challenges. This really helps to build resilience. I know that that's hard sometimes when you have a disappointment, when you have a failure, when you make a mistake to actually think, well, what is the opportunity in this? It is a little bit easier said than done, but it is absolutely possible. So this is not about positive toxicity because I don't want that, right? I don't want you guys to think that You have to always be thinking positive. It's not about that. It's about recognizing, yes, there's adversity here, but what does this present me with? What does this give me the opportunity to do? What can I learn from you? That's what I want you to ask yourself the next time you encounter stress. The third tip is stepping out of your comfort zone to build mastery. Dr. Mike talked about this a lot. He talked about how it wasn't really in his comfort zone to become an astronaut, that there were things that just didn't make sense. He was not a thrill seeker. He didn't know how to swim. He was kind of afraid of heights. And he still is afraid of heights, which is unbelievable that he lived through that and and got through his space missions, even with that fear. And, And yet, stepping out of his comfort zone was what led him to the extraordinary life that he gets to talk about now. And so really, Understanding that we have to step out of what we know so that we can present these opportunities to ourselves to be able to hone skills. And every time that you're able to overcome something, that becomes part of your experience and you believe in yourself more and more with each time that you step out of your comfort zone and conquer the challenge. The fourth tip is reducing your vulnerability to stress with healthy preventative practices. Now there's a lot of different types of preventative practices that we should be doing every day. These are good daily, healthy habits that you should adopt. And some of my favorite ones are making sure that there's structure to your day, yes, even on weekends, although obviously the structure can be a bit looser, trying to get quality sleep every night because without quality sleep, you're gonna have poor emotion regulation skills. It's gonna be harder for you to deal with stress making sure you keep up with healthy eating and exercise, having fun with hobbies, and having a plan for crises. You know, knowing that when something does get to you, what do you do? Do you call a friend? Do you call a professional? What do you need to do to get yourself back from crises? It's great to have some plans before they happen. And the final tip is when stress hits and you're in the middle of it, practice coping strategies. Some of my favorites are breathing and relaxation, practicing grounding practices. And um, if you don't know what grounding is, I do talk about this in one of my other episodes. It's the episode that's a Q&A all about cognitive behavioral therapy. So check that out. I talk about mindfulness all the time. And Dr. Mike and I talked a lot about mindfulness today and just enjoying what's around you, looking out the window having gratitude and appreciating what's in front of you. But one of my favorite things about Astro Mike, and this is a theme that he talks about all throughout his book too, is really relying on your team and being a good team member. And he talks about this as an idea of checking in with your mission control and also being mission control for someone else. This helps you to build close connections. So don't isolate when you're feeling bad, reach out for help, Find your team, whether it's friends, family, or other people who work with you. Don't neglect yourself. Ask for help and support and be that support for someone else because you get something out of it, too. Well, you guys, I hope you learned something today from this episode. I truly did. And Dr. Mike is just so fun to talk to and so amazing and very inspiring. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Supercharged Life. And if you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember to subscribe, download, tell your friends, and take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, time is a great time to supercharge your life. The Supercharged Life with Dr. Judy podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical, psychological, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, psychology, or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional.